millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Duck, goose, or a nice cut of roast mutton? And would Sir like the port or the Sauvignon Blanc with his mane? No, I'm not asking what you're planning to have for Christmas dinner. I'm speculating what you might have been served if you'd been to a Waterloo banquet. Tonight, we're going to party like it's 1820, looking at the commemorations around the Battle of Waterloo, how it differed if you were an esteemed duke or a lowly pleb, and how Waterloo celebrations went from being a military shindig to something that had a nationwide and even international appeal. This is Waterloo, a feast fit for a duke, coming up next on the Napoleonic Wars pod. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonic Wars pod and as you've heard a session on Waterloo and the memory of Waterloo, a a drum that we've banged a few times on this show but we're about to bang it again and no apologies will be given. You will not be surprised to hear that I have Dr. Memory, as he's asked me to refer to him in the house. Luke Reynolds, assistant professor at the University of Connecticut, not so recently promoted assistant professor at the University of Connecticut. Congratulations, belatedly, although they need to hurry up and make you like full professor already. Um, Author of Who Owned Waterloo? Battle, Memory and Myth in British History 1815 to 1852. And there's a reason that we are doing this episode today. The paperback of Who Owned Waterloo is out right now. It came out this morning. Go buy it. Get on with it. You've been told. Do so. Um, Luke will probably give you a discount code at the end, so make sure you listen all the way through. There you go. There's your incentive to listen to the entire episode. But if for whatever reason you weren't somebody who went and bought the hardback, it was worth it. But budgets i understand why you may not have availed yourself it's out in paperback people there is literally zero excuse oxford university press go sort it out luke great to see you again my friend how are you doing i'm well zach i am very well and it's wonderful to be back although i'm we're gonna forgive you on this one because you are teetotal and in fairness i am nearly teetotal as well i knew you were gonna correct me on the bloody wine choice yeah exactly i I, because 
it should be is it red wine with red meat is that it's, the rule yeah it's traditionally red wine with red meat white with uh white with fish. chicken and fish yeah. Uh, but the crucial thing is that if you in in eighteen uh, and the first banquet was eighteen twenty one, not eighteen twenty. Um, but if if at any mm. of those banquets you um, you asked for port during the main meal, you probably would have been chucked out. And only if you had asked very nicely, would your sword and helmet have come with you? Yes, um, yes, that's that's true. But let's be honest, with my sword collection. They're not letting me through the door in the first place. It's far too plebeian. What that I'm, is, what that I'm is wielding. very valid. But, Same here, but, in but, fairness. I'm, I'm a damn Yankee, so they're not going to let me anywhere near well, that Absolutely. Thing. You're one of these ungrateful people who doesn't even like tea. So, you know. Um... Okay. In in general, I will take that as, as a national slur, but I you have seen me drink endless cups of tea myself. That's part of the reason why I said it, just to wind you up. Um <laughs> Although I have a question, duck and goose, surely you would serve, I don't know why this has suddenly turned into a podcast on appropriate wines to have at dinner. Um, surely you would have a white wine with the duck or the goose. So uh, duck and goose are heavier mm. fowl meats. Uh, they, they tend to be sort of gamier. They tend, especially mm -hmm. the, the the dark meat side. Um, so my instinct would be a red Probably a lighter red, so like a Pinot Noir rather than something heavy. Um, we are both reaching here, mate. Like we, yeah, our, our, neither of our research can cover this one. This is true. I, I may actually text a friend over the course of this podcast and see if I get an answer. Um, Sam Jolly will be consulted on what's what is appropriate um, as a an aperitif to have with your. Um, with your duck and goose uh shall we actually get on and do some history though because i guess that's sort of I what mean, we're it's, here for. it's it's certainly a novel approach it, it is um you know actually focusing on what the the show's meant to be about this is something that we'll never catch on on this podcast um there's i we 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 said at the start um i would digress from the the set list of questions um and your response was as pithy as it was devastatingly accurate mm -hmm. uh, would you care to repeat you shock me. I know, I know. This show, rabbit holing, what? Um, but let's let's be unimaginative. Let's go back to the beginning. I tell you what, can we go back to the the night of Waterloo itself, even? So Wellington gets back well after 10 p.m. I know that he orders toast over the course of the night when he's woken up to be told um that Gordon has died. Um, has a little cry, quite understandably, mm -hmm. um, orders some toast and a cup of tea, um, starts writing the Waterloo Dispatch. Do we know any more about what Wellington has actually consumed over the course of the day? Because, you know, he's been a quite busy man over the course he of the day. He has been. A, he's been a very busy man. Um, you know, there is there is a... There are various reports of what's in his saddlebags that he's sort of noshing on. You know, there's there's mentions at some point of um, a hard-boiled egg or two, which is actually an excellent uh, quick-carry source of protein. Um, although if he wanted to be truly sort of British, it would have been a Scotch egg rather than a re regular hard-boiled egg. Vindication um, for Scotch eggs. Um, I have had a long-standing debate with the same, said Sam Jolly, incidentally, on the virtues 
of the humble scotch egg and mm. i've been widely condemned as a philistine for having forthright views on the righteousness of the scotch egg because of course it is a sentient being that has its own righteousness um but uh tell me what it what is your um your stance on the scotch egg Seeing as we've been stupid in terms of this food, I, you know, I'm I'm actually not a I'm not a fan of of either form of sort of hand carry egg. I prefer my eggs uh, slightly softer, but I I see no reason why the Scotch egg should be dismissed if the hard boiled is not. That is that is a an admirable save there. Um, I was about to invite you to leave via the nearest exit. Although that would be counterintuitive, since then we wouldn't actually have an episode to record. Okay, so Wellington not eating much, perhaps understandably. And, I mean, you know, really grabbing it, grabbing it when he could. And you know, the other thing, the other thing we have to remember, and this is, you know, at the danger of turning this into a Wellington apology podcast, and God knows there are enough of those out there. Um, but you know, we have to remember that you know he meets he meets Blucher at La Belle Alliance. Uh, he's doing his stuff and. The only fundamentally, the only way he can get back to his headquarters in any time that would allow him to sleep is to go right across this battlefield. And, you know, as as I've commented, as uh, dozens of scholars from Alexander Mikabridze down to Richard Holmes, down to everyone has has made the point. Waterloo is is a tight valley. It's contained and there's a lot of slaughter there. So he really does have to to go through the the results of his of his success you know and and he is you know he's he's marching through there and he is hearing screams and cries and things like that and you know especially having gotten very little sleep uh i'm pretty sure and the and the sort of the adrenaline and and relief rushing through him um yeah you know the man was notoriously iron but i think he was weaker mentally than or emotionally not mentally emotionally than than he has probably ever been i mean you've got to put yourself in that moment right darkness has fallen by that point um so he can pick his way through the highway um there'll have been plenty of people milling about but you can't see much beyond the highway but you can hear it you can hear the whines of the dying horses the groans of the dying men people literally calling out with their last words Mm -hmm. and as you say he has to ride back through that carnage whilst contemplating the fact that who's around him absolutely nobody because the entirety of his staff is either dead or wounded along with a significant proportion of his senior officers so it's not even as though he can rendezvous and meet up and have a quick sort of shindig with, for example, Picton. You yeah. know, what have you got to report? What's what's your situation? Are you able to move forward? He can't do any of that because half of these people are dead. So yeah. it's really not surprising um, that having a, a five course slap up meal is is not a leading priority. No, for it's him. really not. And I and um, I completely understand having having operated basically on adrenaline and what he could fit in his saddlebag. Dry toast and tea makes the most sense. You know, it, 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 you know, in in the modern world, he might have he might have also called for you know I don't know uh, some sort of um, MRE of chicken soup or something, but it would have been something easily digestible, something like that. 
I mean, in a moment like that, you don't particularly want heavy flavours because, well, I, I can't speak for somebody who's been in combat. So, you know, I'm going to heavy, heavily caveat what I'm saying here. But I would imagine that something that's pretty tasteless and bland and doesn't kind of agitate is is probably quite... I mean, this is the thing, right? You're saying, you know, he's he's coming back on the highway. You can't see what's around him. He can definitely hear it. But also, I would, you know, I would add, he can smell it. That's a good point. You know... Die, battlefields do not smell pleasant. At best, it's saltpeter and gunpowder. And it goes downhill from there really quickly. Yes, it, it does. Um, people use your imagination, will avoid being coarse, but it's yeah. it's it's not nice. Um <clears throat> Okay, yeah. so that's that sort of night of. But Waterloo obviously goes on to become an annual commemoration. Um, now the Waterloo Banquet is kind of the second stage in this story, so we'll we'll hold that for a moment. I guess the first question is, how does that transition happen? How do we go from look, battle has happened to there's going to be the annual commemoration? Because, to my knowledge, I mean there is now a thing called Traff Night, <clears throat> Trafalgar Night, which may or may not have been celebrated by the navy i'm not entirely sure i would have to speak to naval historians unless of course you know but um... there's certainly there's certainly um evidence of of sort of you know toasts drunk on ships and things like that uh but i i have um i've seen i i haven't done the, the requisite research to, to answer this definitively on the civilian level what i have seen are calls after very successful Waterloo commemorations by newspapers basically saying, let's do this again in October for Trafalgar. This was fun. Um, so, you know, there's definitely, there's definitely some people thinking that way. Okay. But... So how do we, we get to that point where people are taking the time to stop on inverted commas Waterloo day and Hey, let's actually have a party. Cause that's basically what we're talking about here. I would, my gut is, that look, the army is going to look for excuses to have a have a booze up, right? You, you're looking for that opportunity. Um, it's also going to be a somber occasion, particularly in the immediate aftermath. You probably kind of want to focus more on having a good time and and toasting your fallen comrades uh, and kind of in vertical commas honouring them in that way. So how do we get to this? And and also, is there a kind of a push from the top down? Do you have kind of royalty trying to sort of arc in and, and latch on to this or is this something that just gets driven forwards by the army at a regimental level mm. so i think the first thing we really need to we really need to to sort of clear up uh especially for anyone who is listening to this grinding their teeth about how you know the bad taste we're talking about here um waterloo is fundamentally the last time commemoration takes the form of pure unadulterated celebration Right. This is, you know, the, the next the next big thing after Waterloo is the Crimea and the Crimea starts that transition into the dem democratization of war and the democratization of loss that will eventually lead to World War One and the cenotaphs and the, you know, Veterans Day. And what, what, what is Veterans Day over here? What is what is Armistice Day and then um, Remembrance Day? You know, and as as I as I mentioned, you know, in my book, yes, there are toasts drunk to the memory of the fallen and all of that. There's, you know, moments of silence. But even at that most dour, these these are so far from laying a wreath of poppies at the cenotaph. This these are drunken parties in many cases. 
Uh, my favorite description of all time of the Waterloo Banquet is from the Bristol Mercury, who dismissed it as gold-plated military orgies. Um, that is quite some quote. It really is. It really is. So yeah, so you know, we we do have to sort of remember that this is it's a different. Uh, how much as as much as I hate this phrase, it was a different time, Zach. It, it was no. a different time. Um, be be careful who you try and sound too much like. Yeah, in, no, in that's that's that. fair. That's fair. But I mean, but this is the thing. It was. Um, I mean, it, I do it, take the point that you're making here. Yeah. You know, this is there's there's a different philosophy around exactly. This. I mean, we look. You and I are heavily involved in the Napoleonic and Revolutionary Wargraves charity. Hashtag yeah. ag, hashtag shameless plug, hashtag no, there isn't really an apology coming in this way. Um, hashtag we need a hashtag. Uh, hashtag why the hell are we using a hashtag? We need to hashtag get over the hashtag. Um, but so the, the one of the things that people often say to me is, well, aren't you using a 20th century kind of construction to commemorate the war dead here? And and there's there's a whole debate there. But there is a point that you know a lot of these guys get chucked into very hasty mass burial pits this is a different philosophy and you said it yourself you've got to go through a a sea change to get to yeah. the post 1918 consensus on commemoration and that happens because literally every family has seen somebody yeah. very close to them die and they can't go out there to mourn the dead different concept um that's not to say that you didn't have every single family know somebody who had um been killed mm -hmm. but it's it's not quite as immediate the for britain particularly the the immediacy isn't quite there in the same way um and and the narrative that gets spun right you know you've got you've got that kind of inverted commas rule britannia narrative that I, I tend to refer to quite a lot these days, uh, particularly in teaching, that it, it just kind of, it embeds itself in how Britain considers itself, right? This is the whole kind of Linda Collie mm -hmm. and the construction of yeah. British national identity. National you know? myth and national yeah. identity. Yeah, that's, I mean, that that is that is the, the rock on which I have built my church. Uh, you know, the, you know, yeah, it, it, it's and Waterloo is is a crucial part of that construction of that building. Um, and I think it also, you know, it, it fundamentally. You know, yes, it, World War One, there's not a family that's untouched. Um, and yes, there are there are you know the Napoleonic Wars cost millions of lives in total, but it but very little of it falls on British shores, and we don't have illustrated papers, we don't have war correspondence, we don't have that's all a mid nineteenth century Crimea and on thing, so this is by definition more separate. It's it's pulled further. There's a filter there. Um, and yeah, and I think also it's, it, you know, what, what starts this is sheer relief because, you know, almost most of the people, what roughly, what, a quarter of Britain's populace on, in June of, of 1815 have known nothing but war. The armies haven't been marching across their land. They haven't, you know, the, the cities haven't been burned. We're not, this is not... As, I'm not saying that the you know that London is as as badly off as as Moscow or Berlin or anything like that or that you know that there's the strife there, 
but they have known this conflict um, all their lives. And to have that sort of fall away is in a weird way, honestly, the, the one of the best comparisons, and this is also going to sound very strange, and I don't mean to minimize what I'm saying here, but one of the best comparisons might be the fall of the Berlin Wall. It's that moment of, oh, everything has changed. We are, le this uncertainty is gone. This conflict is gone. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think that hits. You know, it's, it's June 22nd, 1815, when most Londoners hear about the victory. You know, per uh, Major Henry Percy shows up at, on the 21st, very famously goes, delivers the news to the Earl, Earl Bathurst, uh, Secretary of State for War, and then continues on to what is now the East India Club in St. James's Square and lays the two uh, eagles at the um, at the feet of the Prince Regent and is immediately the next day made a Lieutenant Colonel and an order companion of the Order of the Bath as sort of a reward for this. Um but what marks that you know, the minute that the minute that uh, that gazette comes out, there's there's um, spontaneous celebrations. There's fireworks. There's new formation dances. There are literally street parties, a la you know um, coronations and that sort of thing. Um, and it's that heady combo where you know the army has just won this major victory that is in theory released Britain from a quarter century of war, and conveniently they're not there to screw it up. Which means that arguably the British army has never been more popular in the 19th century than they were on the 22nd of June, 1815. You know, it's that, it's that combo of they've done something amazing and they're not there to remind everyone they're human. There is that um, for sure. So, so just to put that all of what Luke said in just a tiny bit more context, folks, imagine this, if you're born in 1792, by June of 1815, you have known 18 months of peace in your entire lifetime. And that's just that little window with the peace of Amiens until that disintegrates. Um, and to speak further to, to what you're saying about this kind of different philosophy, that that news report in the Gazette, where it lists, uh, it contains a list of dead and wounded, but dead and wounded senior officers, mm -hmm. not rank and file very yeah. different um very different way of, of looking at things just to return to that dangling thread of um the the appropriate wine to serve with your your duck and goose because what this situation needs right now is some levity and um um hilarity so um sam has very kindly responded uh, affirming that yeah it should be red um definitely red she says probably an italian Valley Policella or a Portuguese Douro. Wellington mm. would certainly approve of the latter. Um, so. Apparently other people would advocate for something more hearty, like a Chianti or a French Syrah. Um, Syrah? Syrah? Syrah. There we go. Que Syrah Syrah. That's, that's an appalling pun that will no doubt lose me the two French listeners who do actually listen to this show um and the reason that i'm i'm returning to that is because we are going to move on to the banquet right um kind of apt so there is there is a there was a purpose to the bridge there. There, there that is that is very valid however if if are we are we leaving sort of early commemoration by the wayside 
I mean, if you want to keep going, we can keep going. So there, with... there is there is one story that I I do. It's one of my favorite stories in my entire book, and I have to share it. And I think the the those those listeners of yours who have not read it uh, will enjoy this. The first truly public commemoration, annual commemoration of the Battle of Waterloo, so June 18, 1816, is a riot on Hampstead Heath. So the newspapers carry these reports that turn out to be wrong, that there's going to be a grand military uh, display, um, you know, um, review, that's the word I'm reaching for, on Hampstead Heath in commemoration of the battle. And so there's a plan already, you know, already by, by 1816, we are at the stage where, you know, military reviews are seen as good entertainment by the populace. And so there's this plan for, you know, everyone's going to show up. One of the, one, one of the pleasure boat companies runs a special service, um, you know, down the Thames to get people there or up the Thames that the, whichever, whichever uh, delete is appropriate. Um, they all show up. A lot of them, the worst for, dr for drink, the problem is there's no review plant. Every British veteran of Waterloo uh, at Windsor at that point is sitting down to a slap up meal on trestle tables along the long walk at Windsor. And they're, begin they're, giving, they're being given roast beef. They're being given lots of stuff. They're even each one of them is given, I think, a pint of wine by a local wine merchant. Um, there's no, there's nothing. There are no military anywhere on Hampstead Heath. And so being a drunk crowd who didn't get what they want, they riot and they set fire to the Heath. And then they finally get the military display they want because word finally gets back and a cavalry detachment is sent to get them off the Heath. So yes, uh, the first public annual Waterloo commemoration is a riot in every sense of the word. That is marvellous. Um, certainly not the military intervention that they might have hoped for. You can imagine that sort of initially they're all sort of very pleased. Oh good, finally the, the army's arrived. And then of course sort of the sabres get drawn and, and suddenly yeah. suddenly they, they the, the whole thing takes a, a different air. Okay, mm -hmm. from, from the ridiculous to depending on your perspective, perhaps the sublime, certainly the um, visually ostentatious and spectacular, mm -hmm. the Waterloo Banquet. Now, there's a there's a wing effectively of Apsley House. So Apsley House gets built outwards. People, we don't have a time for a, a detailed architectural history of of Apsley House, but Wellington employs a guy who who's very good at his job, whose name has just dropped out of my head, which is embarrassing um, to to expand the the place. Um, and along effectively one side of the building is what becomes the Waterloo um, Banquet Hall. Um, is the entire wing of Apsley House built specifically with that in mind? I know that room is is deliberately fashioned in that way to the point where it you've actually got um, candelabs coming out of the floor yeah ten, designed ten to fit ton, perfectly 10 to... ton russian marble and and they perfectly fit around the way you would lay out the table for mm -hmm. the thing and then they, they end up being at the perfect height it's 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 quite impressive i must say um mm -hmm. they do fit very well into the surroundings it's quite surprising um and so i 
how much that room, which is the now the picture gallery, and it, it it's graced with all of the port, it's with roughly, you know, um, roughly half the art in that room is art that Wellington reclaimed from the French baggage at Victoria and was was gifted to him by um the the, the Kingdom of Spain. Um was definitely designed to host grand formal occasions. Uh, the Waterloo Banquet was absolutely one of those, but it wasn't the only one. They, you know, he throws balls in that area as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, he's 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 got. Uh, I think he's a little bit inspired by Versailles, uh, in that you know, sort of the way it's designed. Um, but yeah, no, the candelabras are massive and they are permanent features there, which means you have to be damn careful if you're waltzing. Uh, you do if if you've got two left feet, they are an absolute menace. Not that I've ever danced in that place because um, you wouldn't catch me dancing dead, quite frankly. Yeah, um, and and that is something that will please a great number of people. And yeah, provide them with much relief. But so the 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 banquet takes place in three venues uh, over the course of its life. Uh, for the first seven years, from 20, 1821, which is the first one, to eighteen twenty eight, uh, it's in the state dining room, which is in the northeast corner of Apsley House. Uh, it's you can go in there. It's part of the tour, and they usually use it. It's always set up with one of his dining sets. Uh, it's usually the one that's that's used to show off the um, uh, the silver set with all the the pyramids, sort of the Egyptian style. Um, but that's where it, that's where it is for the first first couple of years, and that one can seat between fifty and sixty guests. Uh, Eighteen twenty nine, partially because of the construction of the picture gallery and partially for convenience, the Waterloo banquet takes place at 10 Downing street because Wellington is the prime minister. Uh, and then from 30 to 52, when it stops, it is in the picture gallery, which can seat around 85 comfortably. The highest number of guest list that we have is 1852. Uh, and there are 79 guests listed. So we're getting pretty close. Why the bigger guest list in 52? Surely you would expect the opposite to be the case and then it would get turned into a smaller affair as more people died. So it actually becomes bigger and bigger. It's fascinating. Um, as it becomes more of a public thing, uh, and you know, you know, there there are definitely people that are that are mainstays until they pass away. Um, but they fill it up even more. So, you know, you get this uh this breakdown. Um Hang on. I just to, just to make it clear, I do not have these numbers at at my beck and call at all times. Uh, so it's it really starts to go big in around 1840. Now, to be clear, we don't have guest lists for every year. Uh, we've got a few archival ones from the 20s and 30s, um, and then uh, the newspapers start carrying guest lists, uh, and that's where the, the the rest of this is from. So from um, from 45 on, it's always over 70. It's hovering uh, anywhere between. And there are a couple of others. The first one uh, in uh, 21 had between 30 and 40 guests. We're not sure because uh, the newspapers say one thing and the, the guest list, which may be a fragment, says another. Okay. But I think I think genuinely they're trying to they're trying to to fill it up a little bit. They're trying to make it as big as possible. And I think there are people that are invited later that never would have gotten tickets earlier. Uh, but people start to make room. And the principle is you've you've got to be a veteran, right? 
Um, you have to have served at Waterloo as an officer. Mm-hmm. Now, in theory, that means we have a a an opportunistic guest list, a, a potential guest list of 1,770 men. The total that I've put together in terms of um, people who are invited are 207 names, which is just under 12% of the surviving officers. So what's the lowest ranked individual that manages to get in? That is completely putting you on the spot. Yeah, that is. I'm curious about how how low does this really go? Because you're going to have... Your, your mainstays who are going to be there. Hill is obviously going to have an open-ended invitation. Ditto um, Uxbridge. But, mm-hmm. you know... The two the two who make the most, uh, Uxbridge or Anglesey is at 15. Uh, Hill is at... Um, six, and then he passes away, obviously. Um, he he went to more, but we just don't. He just didn't go to the ones that we have guest lists for. But of the of the guests we have, the two leading um, attendees are uh, Fitzroy Somerset, which is no surprise. You know Wellington's military uh, attaché. Uh, later, of course, Baron Raglan um, and Edward Bowater. Both of those have sixteen appearances. In terms of lowest rank, the lowest rank I can I've that I can pick out can tell you definitively is colonel. There are colonels, um, and there there are probably people there that were captains at Waterloo, but by the time these things become big, they will have served in India or somewhere else, and they're at least a colonel, if not a knight of the British Empire, and that sort of thing. Oh, Actually, there wouldn't have been a night of British Empire. There would have been a night of the Bath, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I wasn't going to split hairs, um, but yeah, I get what you're on about. Is there any juicy goss from these? You know, you've got a bunch of um, big egos in that room, not least the Duke himself, um, but you've also got some people who are known for their teetotal tendencies. You know, Hill is is not somebody who drinks heavily, um, but you know, do we do we have a moment where Hill forgets himself, has a couple of glasses of port, and um, I don't know, suddenly busts out with some forthright views on whoever it might be. Uh, oh man, I'm. I wish I could tell you. I wish I could tell you that we have definitive proof of that. Uh, we do not, unfortunately. Um, you know, in terms of in terms of forthright views, the the closest thing I can say is. Um, you know, there's a very so so the so the big thing at these banquets, besides being there and being seen, uh, there are 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 there two places where you can jockey for position. Uh, one is outside of the banquet, and it's you know arriving to see who gets the most cheers. It's June. A lot of people are in open topped carriages, and there is a space. It is the um, I'm just picturing London geography here. It is the western side of the eastern entrance to Apsley House's gates. So not the door itself, but the gates in front. And the way traffic worked, if you stood right there, that was where almost everyone who came in caught your eye. And therefore, if you if you were in uniform and saluted, they were obliged to salute back. So there's definitely some jockeying. Um, and we have accounts like, you know, um, the Earl of Cardigan, for example, shows up outside at least once 
to sort of burnish his own reputation and get people to acknowledge him. So there's that part. There's, you know, sort of the cheers of the crowd as you arrive and jockeying for position in there. The other one is the toasts. Because the second half of this banquet is effectively toasts and giving thanks and speeches and things like that. Now, there's a very strict hierarchy, right? You know, you always toast the cavalry first. You always toast the guards before the line infantry. Anyone who's ever been involved in the British Army is looking at their podcast device of choice going, you shock me yet again, right? Um, but there were people. And yet generally, those toasts, you know, sort of they call out uh, the line infantry. And they'll highlight someone. So there, we have, so we have a, an account, for example, of Wellington saying at one point, you know, uh, calling for the next toast to be the line and uh, highlighting Sir Colin Halkett, who he says, you know, as I recall, did sterling service for that for that it, arm at that moment. Um, the Prussians are toasted, but they're almost always toasted to Sir Henry Harding because he was the attaché. He was the British. Uh, representative in the Prussian army. Um, so there's that sort of thing. And you see, so like if someone shows up, for example, you know, places like maybe the medical corps won't get a, a, a shout out unless someone from the medical corps is at the banquet. In that case, then they are, they get the shout out. Um, and there always are a few that are sort of given individuals, especially in later years. Um so, you know, for Sir Harry Smith gets a shout out uh, after he comes back from Africa, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's that's very much sort of the jockeying into position that you get. Uh, there is one uh, one case that I encountered um, of a engineering firm who designed a steam war chariot, basically what we would describe as sort of half armored car, half tank, um, who were desperate to get it. Uh, uh, to the attention of the war office, the minister, you know, ordinance. Uh, and so sent the blueprint to Apsley House, asking Wellington to lay it on the table after uh, the plates had been cleared. And he got a very polite, you know, take a long walk off a short pier, apply directly to the minister of ordinance, um, secretary of ordinance, and uh, who, by the way, was invited that night, but that's not neither here nor there. <laughs> See, I thought you were going to say that, you know, that the best solution to this and what they were aiming for was to get one of the guests to turn up in said war chariot, um, because that would have made quite the impression and caused quite the stir. You, you can just imagine what all of these Londoners would have made of this great sort of hulk of iron puffing and blowing its way. Quite, quite literally chuffing heck. <laughs> yes, indeed. Okay, um, so we've talked about who was there. We've talked about the juicy goss that sadly there wasn't. Um, Sorry, I was Jack. hoping there would there would be knives sort of stuck in people's backs and well, not like literally because you know I had quite enough of that. But you know, sort of you you've got people and wine, things happen. But yeah, sadly no, not because they were far too refined. Um, so what was served? Okay, so we only have one remaining menu from uh, it was from the 1839 banquet uh it's courtesy of the archives at stratfield say unsurprisingly um it is insane it's utterly insane uh it starts with your choice of soup spring soup or turtle soup mm. uh then we've got four fish fish dis dishes accompanying Easy for four you to say indeed four removes which were dishes that were sort of brought in served and then brought back out 
how do, how sorry um foodie philistine here um as as many will attest to uh, why what I, I don't understand okay so removes are additional dishes served within a course they're added after the originals are removed um so basically uh the fish course is served there's the four options there we've got turbot with lobster sauce dover sole filet au velo trout in genoese sauce and a mate lot of eels um and then once everyone is served the fish dishes are removed and four meat dishes are added in the same course. So fat chicken a la Regence, ham with Madeira, beef filet a la jardiniere, and veal calves head on tot. I mean, and yuck to that, yuck to the eels. But I, I'm I'm surprised because uh, I would have thought etiquette would mean that you can't serve meat alongside fish. So I think the general the general thing was just that 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 was done, and then there's even more, right? We've got 24 entrees. 20. Yep, to choose from. To be clear, like the options are there. Okay. Um, you know, you were we're a long way from chicken or fish, sir. You know, we're we're there. Then four roasts, uh, four, and then eight more removes. Then 24 entremets. Um, and then two side table services. I, I So my favorite part about this is the side, one of the side table services is entirely dessert, right? Two apple tarts, gooseberry tart, currant tart, cabinet pudding, whatever that is, rice pudding and fried whiting. Although whether fried whiting is a dessert or not is entirely up to you. But the other one there is There are so like, many jokes that could be made in the, the, know, the right? people, please, you will keep this clean. This is a this is not a dirty show. This is a clean yeah. show, please. Indeed it is. But the other one is like uh volavant with bechamel sauce, croquette of fowl au velo, <laughs> two full haunches of venison, roast beef, a saddle of roasted mutton, because Wellington had to have his mutton in there, um, and rice with consomme. Uh now one thing I will say, and you may have already tweaked this uh, based on what I've been saying, this is one of, one of my favorite ridiculous things. The menu for the 1839 Waterloo Banquet was in French. I'm, oh, I can't even begin to express the irony. Yeah. And I would like to I would like to give a shout out to um, Lydia Russo, who, who at that point was, and not at that point in 1839, but recently was a house steward at Apsley House who translated the menu. Um. Yeah. So there's there's a lot on there. Uh. The uh the menu itself can be found in my book. I I it's printed in ti- in its entirety. Uh. And it's absurd. Can we just emphasize, people, that it's not the entirety of the book? Um. Who owned Waterloo is no. not just everything that was served at the Waterloo oh, banquet, God. but I, it, 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 it's as you can hear, it's quite lengthy. It's um, the it so... is the best part of a page in chapter three. Um. Yeah, you know, <sighs> the immediate question has to be: Does Wellington pay every single penny of this out of his own pocket? I believe he does. I believe he does. Every you know. single year. So how does it not bankrupt him? Um, it gives you an indication of how much this guy is bringing in. And how yeah, much let's cost, let's right? talk. Let's you know, Lord Commander of the Sank Ports, uh, Chancellor of Oxford University. Uh, you know, there's there's a bunch that he's plus all of the value of Stratfield Say and the other investments. 
and his share of prize money over the years. Uh, yeah, the I, I don't think he ever had to really worry about, um, you know, cash. No, I mean, it doesn't sound as though he's sort of struggling to work out where the, the money for the weekly bread ration is coming from, does it? Um, okay, so at the risk of, of stating the blind in the obvious, we've covered what is unquestionably a highly elitist gathering there. Unquestionably. Um, this is this this was an all-male formal dinner. Uh, there were never any women invited. Um, even Victoria, when she was the reigning monarch, didn't get an invitation. Prince Albert represented her. So, str yeah, strictly all-male. Um, and you had to be a veteran unless you were the reigning monarch or Prince Albert. And very, very occasionally a ranking ambassador of an allied nation would be invited. But this is the very definition of elite. I mean, my gob hit the floor when you said Albert has to go in Victoria's stead. Yep. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, you, you kind of wonder, I mean, it depends where Victoria was in, in her stage of life, but somebody who, who was so fond of um, the Duke and vice versa, so there is one year where uh, Victoria throws a party. I don't remember if it's a ball or a fete or an entertainment um, the same night and invites not only Wellington, but everyone who's attending his banquet to toddle over to Buckingham Palace afterwards. Um, and a number of them do attend. This is the thing. This is the thing we we forget about. Um, and really, honestly, unless you unless you are knee deep in sort of cultural or social history of the time, or honestly read a lot of Regency romance novels, because they get this dead on right as well. These the the ton partied until four, five, six in the morning. So this party ends around eleven. I would estimate roughly half of these people every year head off to something else afterwards. It's literally the definition of the night is young. Yeah, very much so. So, I mean, I know, you know, so there, there's, there's, we don't have, we don't have de definite proof, but I am pretty sure that a couple of people headed off to Buckingham Palace afterwards uh, to, you know, to maybe, who knows, maybe try to pick up one of the, the Queen's ladies in waiting. You know, it's, it's, uh, the night is young, as you say. In, indeed. Um, so if you don't Sorry, get an invite... Yeah. Oh, sorry, it's simply that we've digressed somewhat. Yeah, you know, um, I know. I was about to apologize for leading you off of what was what was your question to begin with. Yeah, I mean, what what do you do if you don't get an invite? Because I mean, let's let's start with the army, right? Because the, in theory, if you're an officer, you stand a chance of getting an invitation. In reality, you know, good luck, right? You, yeah. You've given us the numbers, twelve percent. We do, um, we do have letters uh, addressed to Wellington's secretary basically begging for invitations. You know, I, I, I you know, Colonel da -da 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 would like to inform that he will be in London on June 18th with his uniform freshly pressed. Please let me come to the party. Yeah, pretty exactly, please. Exactly. Um, so if you don't get an invite, I'd imagine pretty much every red, well, no, every regiment that has been at Waterloo must be throwing their own yeah parties so how yeah. how does that look in a kind of a, a physical sense 
Um, and where do the civilians kind of get in on the act, if at all? They, so, okay. Uh, so there's a couple of questions in there, actually. So we'll we'll start, we'll, we'll sort of go through. Uh, early on, uh, the, the military parties are reported in the press. There are things like the, the, the Grand Picnic in Windsor. Um, the next, so the, after the Grand Picnic, uh, the the brigade of the the foot guards throw a party for the Royal Horse Guards Blue, uh, and the next year the Royal Horse Guards Blue throw a party for the foot guards. Nice. Um, yeah, it, it's there's a lot of that. But what starts to happen, really, as the banquet takes off, and it's 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 coincidental, um, is military parties start to become more and more private. They start to be in barracks. They start to be things like that. Um, and the the fundamental two-part answer to, to why that is, is partially it is, yes, it's the banquet, right? It, that's now the centerpiece. Uh, but it's also because, as you said earlier, people drink and make poor decisions. Uh, and we have evidence of, you know, uh, a group of of soldiers breaking every single window in a pub. There's a riot at the Marquis of Granby public house that leaves several people injured and one person actually dead uh, of a cracked skull. And that's 1821 as well. Um, and there's, you know, there's uh, there's ridicule. Uh, one of one of your favorites and mine, um, uh, William Heath, the the well known caricaturist does a wonderful piece of art called The Glorious 18th of June. Um, and it is two drunk cavalrymen staggering along, uh, like, you know, uh, jackets undone, shakos flying, one sword is upside down and falling out of its scabbard. Uh, but their Waterloo medals are very palpably on display, and it's very clear what he's criticizing. Um so you know, I think it, it's partially a PR thing. It's let let's contain this. Let's if we're gonna if we're gonna go nuts, let's go nuts in private, uh, where the where they where we can't be criticized. But also, is there an argument? And I'm kind of uh, I've got one sort of half of my brain on Victoria Princi's, um recent work on. Granted, she's looked at this more in a kind of a French context, but on barracks and mm. sort of the the way in which where the military is day to day basically changes during this yes. period you know that move away from quartering the the rank and file amongst yeah. the civilian population taking them out mm -hmm. of yes that population and putting them in their own purpose-built space i.e yeah. the barrack setting um which has a whole kind of host of um rationales and, and benefits and arguably also disadvantages that we would have to do another podcast on but is there an element of that playing into this as well? Yeah, there absolutely is. Uh, it's easier. They've got the space all set. Uh, it is private. You know, they can do what they want. Um, yeah, no, it, 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 you know, the, at the risk of sounding very scholarly, you know, the, the, the early to mid 19th century is when military space changes, military spaces change. Um, and that plays a huge part in this. Uh, what, what is fascinating is you, especially in the colonies, places like uh, Australia, you see Waterloo as, an, as a, a, an occasion where elite civilians are invited into the military space for balls and parties and things like that. Um, 
but there is uh, there is fundamentally a separation that's occurring. Are there exceptions? Absolutely, right. The entire the entire uh, officer uh, regiment, uh, officer corps of one cavalry regiment shows up at Bath Sydney Gardens uh, one year for a big party, um, and their uh, uh, regimental bands make brisk business playing different venues uh, on these dates. But basically what starts to happen is we begin to see that divide, the military-civilian divide kick in as that military space comes to a fore. Um, so that's sort of part one of this. Uh, if you can't get an invitation to the banquet or there's no chance of you ever getting an invitation to the banquet, you're a civilian, things like that, uh, you can show up outside and watch people enter. And they do like, they're, 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 we have reports of you know enough crowds showing up to block Piccadilly. Um, to watch the you know all the people it's, it's kind of like a red carpet right in, in in a certain way um as this becomes more and more popular and as the sort of reputation of this banquet becomes lusher and lusher uh more and more people want to see it and you know yes the illustrated london news is starting and things like that but uh they begin to get you know fitzroy somerset and uh um Wellington's uh, civilian secretary, whose name escapes me, um, begin to get requests to see the table laid, to see the table set. Um, and they start, you know, it, it, it's on and off, but people show up to see that table all set up before anything happens, before the officers are let in. A little bit like, you know, sort of... Uh, well, I mean, in a certain way, the, the way you, you still go to Apsley House, you know, you see that thing. And actually, if you went there um, around the Waterloo, the Waterloo Bicentennial in 2015, they had the full banquet set laid out so you could see it. Um, so a little bit like that, sort of, you know, spectator stuff like that. Now, there is a slight air, sorry to um, interrupt. There is a, a slight air in all of this of that wanting to, I, I almost have a vision that some people would have paid to, go and see these people having the Waterloo banquet in the same way that people uh, and Napoleon taps into this at one point, doesn't he? He allows people to watch him eating in that way that the, the Kings do. It's not just Napoleon. A... Yeah. This is a, this was a medieval thing that was, that was a very yeah. regular thing. And yeah. even, even at this point, right, we're talking 1820s, um, not so much food, but you could pay to watch um, condemned prisoners have their last church service like their last prayers, uh, um, you know, it's, it's, it's that sort of thing. Uh, it's yeah, no, there's absolutely a date. I'll be honest there's... with you. It's, it's, it's a flex, right? It's a certain flex. <laughs> it is. I mean, each to their own. Yeah. Um, forgive me. I've just come across the numbers. The, 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 the candelabras, uh, made carved from solid blocks of marble were one and a quarter tons each. They weren't 10 tons each. They were one and a quarter, but they were 12 feet high. Okay. Um, we'll we'll forgive yeah. you the the earlier Thank laps. Thank you. I appreciate that. But yeah, no, it is it is absolutely, and I think that you know there are there are there are requests that come in for sort of like can we see them eating, and those are always turned down. But there becomes the sort of let's see the let's see the the place. Now, if you have no interest in this, uh, or you don't particularly fancy fighting the crowds, or you don't have an in to get an invitation to at least see this, um, you're still spoiled for choice. Right, there are parties. Um, Almax generally throws a fete. 
Uh, a lot of the theaters will throw something. But the big one in London that is not the Waterloo Banquet, the one that becomes big, is Vauxhall Gardens Waterloo Fete. And that becomes sort of the center of the straight up civilian tongue and world in London. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Talk us through what that involves by comparison. So... That also shifts over the course of... The last one of those is 1850... Either 1850 or 1851. I forget which one. Um, and at the beginning, it's pretty. It's a pretty... It's a standard Vauxhall night. You know, you've got the fireworks, you've got the illuminations. They throw up some more lanterns. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but whenever there's a special occasion at Vauxhall, uh, the way they tout it is they talk about the number of... The extra thousands of lights they've added. So they'll add 5,000, 10,000, 12,000. Uh, to their legendary illuminations, always keeping certain walkways dark for assignations and things like that. Um, and the, the illuminations will be themed, right? There'll be transparencies of crossed pieces, muskets and the Welling, Wellington's bust or a profile or, you know, sort of uh, wa the Waterloo medal done 20 feet wide, uh, that sort of thing. And their, their regular concerts will be supplemented by a military band or they'll play like military waltzes, things like that. As this goes on, they start evolving and they uh, build, they, there's a massive uh, rejig of uh, Vauxhall in um, 1827 where they completely redo the gardens. And at the back, they create this massive ground called, until Vauxhall closes in 1859, the Waterloo Ground, where they stage a giant reenactment. Like they run pipe gas pipes underneath so that they can actually blow up Hugomont and things like that. Um, and, you know, there is all sorts of... Uh, all sorts of insanity. There are huge numbers of noise complaints from the people around Vauxhall. Um, you shock me. Yeah, I know, right? Um, yeah, you know, sort of this purpose-built dance floor of Aries. But also, I'm not being funny, it's it's one night a year. You know, it's not like modern-day bonfire night here in the UK, which sort of seems to start in the middle of October and, and then sort of continues all the way through to sort of New Year's Day. This is this is one night. Yes, yes and no. 
because okay. if you put that much money into a performance, you're going to want to do it more than once. That, that is fair. So yes, the big one is is June eighteenth, um, but uh, you know they keep going. Uh, there's all sorts of you know by popular demand, this will return tonight and that sort of thing. Um, you know it happened. It happened on the eighteenth, then on the twentieth when it still drew again drew an immense crowd. Um, and it was going still in July, and we know that because Wellington attended on the night of the 12th of July, and I quote, laughed heartily at his representative. Um, yeah. You know, so, uh, they, 27 seems to have been, like, the, the apogee, right? It, it, I think it nearly bankrupts them, uh, so they scale back. But there, there is always, you know, sort of more, and they add Waterloo to the Cosmorama and things like that. Um, so it becomes this sort of, the, this big event. Uh, and it's definitely sort of, you know, I think it's a day, it's, it's a day when, so you could buy a season ticket to Vauxhall, and it came in the form of basically a fob or a charm that you could just flash at the door. And I think it's really a day where more season ticket holders will cash in that fob um as well as as well as other people showing up you know it's always well attended it's always uh it's always a good night sure okay so let's start taking this outside of london though um sort of an hour and a bit into the recording um because this this is a, a country-wide affair mm-hmm. um so d- I mean, I guess there are two ways to look at this. One is to look at what other towns slash cities are doing, um, particularly interested in sort of the inverted commas four nations perspective, what happens in, mm-hmm. for example, Dublin, um, but also Edinburgh and Cardiff, but also what's happening in the countryside because the veterans spread, right? They do. Um, to go back to our shameless plug about the Wargraves charity, this is the challenge that we've got, that they're in, pretty much most churchyards that were around at the time up and down the country so you've got representatives of this battle literally all over the place yeah how does that kind of feed into what people are and are not doing on the 18th in subsequent years yeah so it it all all across the country it starts the same as it does in london right it starts with 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 military banquets it starts with uh people buying you know, funding military banquets. Uh, you know, there there are occasions where, you know, especially like uh, 1816, 1817, a regiment comes back and whatever town they're in throws them a dinner, uh, things like that. So we have, we've got reports of this in um, uh, Bury St. Edmunds. We've got reports of this in um, Ipswich, Liverpool, Derby, Derby, Inverness. Um Edinburgh follows London's route. There's not just the military stuff, but there's also, you know, banquets for the elite, um, usually with a with a ball afterwards that is a subscription ball, so it's not just quite the elite. A um, little bit more widespread. Uh, and things continue to evolve. Uh, you asked about sort of the Four Nations, and this is actually a really fascinating side of it. Um, Scotland seizes on this. Scotland is very quick to get in on Waterloo commemoration, right? Uh, they're one of the first to put up a panorama. They're among the first to sort of celebrate it. I mean, for legitimate reasons, right? We've got, they've got the Scots Greys taking the Eagle. They've got all of that. They've got some stuff to pull on. 
And what it's really... I'm I'm just uh, sorry to interrupt you yet again. Very bad form. Um, I'm just a tad surprised because yes, Scott's great. Is fair, fair enough. And yet, you know the 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 Union Brigade is is there, and it contains an, an Irish contingent as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the Highlanders have been uh, a mainstay of Wellington's army all the way across Portugal, Spain, and southern France. So the Highlanders, the Highlanders are so popular that um, they're put into almost everything to the point where uh, Colonel Leach who I believe I've talked about on your podcast before, complains in one of his memoirs that if you look at the average representation of Waterloo, you would assume that the Scots on their own beat Boney without the help of the English or the Irish. He doesn't even mention the Welsh. Um, Sorry, Wales. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of that of that uh, that speech that, that Martin Sheen once gave about Welsh independence that started with a quote from, I think, an early Encyclopedia Britannica, where the entire entry for Wales was Wales, colon, see England. Uh, yeah. And I mean, you know, his his whole point was that we need to stop this, right? It's it's, it's terrible. And, you know, yes, uh, the, the, the Welsh have a lot to be proud of, especially their, their sports teams. Um, but, um, but yeah, so there's, there's, you know, Scotland is very, very good at this. Um, and I think it really is about, it, it's, it's two streams. On one side, we have the fact that Waterloo commemoration becomes conservative. It becomes political. Because Waterloo itself, as I've meant, as I've said many times before, is a conservative victory, right? The Napoleonic Wars are a triumph of traditional conservatism over radicalism. Um, I won't make the mistake of, of quoting the Ancien Regime because I don't want uh, Beatrice de Graff to reach through her podcast device of choice and strangle me. Um, uh, but uh, it's definitely conservative. And they've got Wellington, who is this avatar of conservatism. And so Scottish conservative clubs latch on to that um, and start doing Waterloo events to sort of push Scottish conservatism. Is this a marriage of convenience as well, though? Because in terms of kind of nation building, inverted commas, and trying to sort of really emphasize the value of the union, it suits the government to play this card and and they do they do it well before waterloo they're doing it oh, yeah. in salamanca they're doing oh, it oh yeah yeah you know it's it's an ongoing thing oh yeah and no, it, it thinking, works both ways yeah but i'm also thinking about how this and apologies i know this isn't something that you specifically do but there's this this is the era of the development of martial race theory which for folks who aren't familiar is is basically kind of a construction uh, an abomination um, in many respects, um, yeah. the, it, it basically, this is a very basic view, but it basically goes, look, the Irish are good, hearty lads who love a fight. Um, and so, you know, if you're from an area that sort of looks a bit like Ireland, then perhaps you're sort of the type who is spoiling for a fight, but you need strong discipline to keep you in check. Um, please note that that is the opinion of the time. That is not the opinion of this podcast host. Um and when it comes to mountainous areas, i.e. the highlands, then you've got sort of this really um, mm. kind of ultra hardy, yeah. um, very martial type you can craft into an, an, the epitome of the soldier. And they go and take this idea out to India and start thinking about um, the the Himalayan regions and start trying to apply mm-hmm. it out there. 
Um, hey, the Gurkhas are a, are a perfect example precisely. of this. Although, in fairness, the Gurkhas kicked the British ass, the British's ass, uh, in order to to earn their place, quote unquote. Quite right. Um, you look, there 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 are places where we're examining that geography makes a deal of sense, right? Whoever looked at the at the outer uh, Hebrides and basically said, "This is where we need to recruit people from to settle the Falklands," that makes a deal of sense, right? It's the same conditions it's the same weather like they know what to do but there is there are also deeply problematic sides to this hugely done um and yeah no there, there is absolutely that part but i think you know i think that goes both ways it's it is it is absolutely the union trying to highlight uh itself but at the same time it's also the scottish reminding parliament of how crucial they are right you know this goes both ways um and kind of you couldn't have done it without us mentality exactly therefore you know make sure that you're investing appropriately yeah. and and all the rest of it yeah and that happens to an even larger extent in dublin you know dublin is the center of anglo-irish power right it's the middle of the pale all of that um and so there is absolutely uh you know some of that in there but they they get they get even more because there it is Look at all of these Anglo-Irish men who fought, including Wellington. Can we please have Catholic emancipation now? And pushing for that. And of course, you know, Wellington does help hammer that through. Um, you know, and so there is that, but at the same time as well, in a way that probably Scotland doesn't have at least as much, but Ireland absolutely does, military displays in Phoenix Park are a very handy way of demonstrating military occupation through pomp Indeed. right that's that's up there with you know martial parades in india that's look at our power look at our guns don't mess with us uh so there is that side of things yeah that was going to be one of my follow-up questions when it came to Ireland. you know how much of what we see is about sending that message as um as the occupiers of a, a rather the, uh, reluctant populace the uh, the iron, but, but the also, iron sorry you carry on the iron fist of occupation clothed in the velvet glove of spectacle did you come up with that yourself or are yes you... that is that is a direct quote from one of my articles that i actually quote in this chapter very nicely done that that is that is eloquent i don't Thank know why you. i said that with a tone of surprise my apologies um i should have said that with a sort of matter of fact that is characteristically eloquent there we go i've <laughs> i've solved i've saved it there we go there we go we we can we can make this all go away in the edit um he says as if he actually does a thorough edit of these shows these days um okay so we've talked about the the united kingdom slash disunited kingdom um depending on your perspective on on contemporary sort of politics and uh, politics of the time um <laughs> let's talk about one of the things that's really pretty key within your book that civil military divide we touched on this already um but the nationalization of waterloo and the way in which that's reflected in annual commemoration so this is actually a really good good segue because it also allows me to talk about the other part that we haven't mentioned which is the urban rural divide right, that you mentioned, and then we got completely divided with martial race theory. Um, I'm, I'm amazed that we rabbit hold on this podcast. <laughs> I'm shocked, shocked to discover there is gambling going on in this establishment. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, 
annual commemoration takes the same form of nationalization as other areas, right? As as a spectacle does, especially as material commemoration does. Um, and it is extensive. Uh, one of the earlier examples of sort of that commemoration is towns trying to outdo each other, right? So if the one town rings its bells and its rival town has to ring its bells and put up bunting, and then there's a parade and back and forth. And this is very clearly not about Waterloo and it's not about veterans. It's about the individual towns, right? There's some of that. But slowly what starts to happen, and this is um, actually one of the first places I came across the sort of nationalization that would then become the sort of throughput uh, of my book, is Waterloo becomes fundamentally a modern saint's day. It becomes, and this is something we're totally familiar with, right? You know, um, Labor Day in uh, Labor Day and Memorial Day in the United States uh, are holidays where people go bar they barbecue and there are parties and they go to their sales on like cars and mattresses and and appliances. They are in theory to commemorate, celebrate organized labor and military sacrifice. Um, but that has, you know, yes, there are still parades, there are still things, but some of that has gone out the window. And we see that here too. There are regular things that happen, uh, you know, uh, actually only about uh, 20 miles south of Wellington, the town, um, there is a uh, longstanding Waterloo livestock market that always happens on the 18th of June that has nothing to do with the battle whatsoever. Uh, it's used as a day to open aqueducts, to open railways. Um, you know, there, there's sort of that, it becomes the sort of, well, when do we do it? We do this on this day because everyone has off this day. It's a feast day. It's that kind of thing. Uh, so that sort of drives it as well. Um, there are other exceptions to this, obviously. There are a couple, uh, there's two rural uh, events that I want to talk about because they're two of my favorites. Um, the first one is... Um, uh, starts in 1819, runs through the 1820s. It's the Winter Slow Hut Amusements slash Sports Day. And this is very palpably, like it is, it's there for the excuse of Waterloo. But at the same time, you know, you walk through this and it's going to look the same as any other village fair, any other summer day uh, in the UK, right? It's got wrestling, it's got um, donkey racing, it's got, and I quote, the singing for snuff by old women, and single stick matches, which is a form of dueling involving cudgels, for a good old cheese. A wheel of cheese was the prize. Um, flawless, 10 out of 10, no, no notes. Um, on the other side, we have the uh, Arlesford's Dance on the Nide, which is also known as the Waterloo Maying, which is effectively an outdoor version of the big Waterloo balls, the big Waterloo fets. Um, you know, under the patronage of the local nobility, the Baron and Lady Rodney, um, a handsome and spacious bower is erected with a full band, and you get to it via the lake where there's small boats drawing you across. It's almost Venetian. And then under the stars and under the lights, the, the, the tongue couples dance all night in the middle of Arlesford. So it does go both ways, but there's absolutely sort of rural sides to this. Um, but at the same time, by the end, you've got things like a cattle market that has no relation to Waterloo whatsoever. And as far as I can tell, 
no, not doesn't even have like a banner up saying like what do you get Waterloo Day cattle market. It's just the 18th of June every year. See, when you mentioned the cattle market, I was desperately hoping that you were going to sort of say that they ran a 20% discount. Um, I don't know, maybe specifically for veterans. You know, bring your Waterloo medal for 10% off the, the hammer price. So the interesting thing about this is, is most of these, the reports at least, have no mention whatsoever of any military at them. Uh, the Dance on the Knife has ex precisely one veteran that is mentioned, and that is only because he's apparently very good at giving blindfolded wheelbarrow rides. Yeah. I mean, that's a unique skill. It is. Um, it I it you really is. Sort of say something um less decorous shall we say um in terms of, of what this veteran was very good at giving out blindfolded um but uh, like no, no, say, no 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 this, no, is, this no. is a clean show this is a clean this is an absolutely clean show um but yeah so a lot of these have you know sort of no military and uh, yeah were there veterans at these things absolutely you know that cattle market was basically the majority of the county there's going to pull in veterans that have turned to farming that were returning to family farms all of that um and did, were there veterans at these in the beer hall or the local pub drinking with their old friends? Of course there were, right? Um, but the crucial thing is that the military has been removed as a motivation. Um, and even in places where there's massive military like decorations, right? Uh, there's a there's a there's a ball that happens at one of London's theaters that is like a grand military masquerade. And the Times reports the next day that there's not a single officer at the thing. It's just a bunch of civilians dressed in reenactment. Uh, no, no offense to to our reenacting friends uh, who uh, are are much more living historians than these people were. These are people who just rent costume to get drunk and possibly get laid. Um, so, yeah. I mean, some things never change, but um, we, we yeah. shall move very plus, swiftly plus, on. Plus ça change, plus ça même chose. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Um, I was actually going to stay with that. You know, to what extent does this get exploited by individuals sort of seeking the affirmation of of all of this? Do you want to just say, look, we perhaps have touched a, a little bit on, on this, um, particularly in reference to um, what we did on Waterloo Across the Empire, right? When we were talking yeah. about the guy out in Australia who seems to have sort of served in about five regiments and um would have been about three at the time i forget the precise details apologies but it was there, great no 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 yeah yeah there's there is a bunch of that uh there is absolutely a bunch of that um so what we see a lot of in this case is uh things that are in that are there already uh theaters um uh concerts etc that add a touch so uh, there's a, the, the, the Prague minstrels are in London at one point on June 18th, and they add a Waterloo cantata or something to their program. And they announce in the papers that like, they're adding this to their regular program. Um, Ashley's Royal Amphitheater, uh, it's, not a, it's not a yearly thing, but you know every couple of years we'll run a revival of the Battle of Waterloo Hippodrama around June 18th to sort of bring all this together. And we are going to just pause proceedings to make a shameless plug on Luke's behalf that his second book, which he's currently working on, will be on precisely that. Um, yes, indeed. Details in a, due course, but it'll be a source we look book. To that. It will be a it will be a source book that I'm I'm very excited about. I'm having an absolute blast uh, writing it. The uh, the uh, shout out actually to the British Library's Playbills collection 
uh, for letting me leaf through stuff. Yeah, it's, it's been quite amusing to get um, periodic WhatsApp messages from you about, you know, am I seeing this right? Are they aping Nelson? Is is this, you know, England expects, yes. but the, the Wellington version? Yes. Uh, and we're, we're both going, kind of going, yep, yep, that's exactly what's happening there. The yeah. Imagination, not always a strong point for some of these guys creating this stuff. Let me uh, let me actually read that out loud. I've got it right here. Uh, Gentlemen, the world has fixed its eye upon us. England expects much. No one, no one is here. I trust uh, who would rather who would not rather die than disappoint his native country's hope. I mean, what, Nelson said it more eloquently, but he in fairness had to. He had a character limit on those flags. This is uh, true. But uh, but yeah, no. There's there's absolutely there's that. Um, while we're while we're on a very slight digression, uh, I've talked about cattle markets, livestock markets, guild days, openings of canals and steamship lines. My favorite random thing to happen on June eighteenth that has nothing to do with Waterloo whatsoever is one town decided it was the perfect day to run their sacred music festival. So liturgical church singing is exactly the correct way to commemorate one of the bloodiest battles of the 19th century. Of course it is. Why didn't it occur to me sooner? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, to, to get back to the to the previous point, so you do you do have that, you know, sort of, so for example, uh, 1817, uh, the anniversary of Waterloo in 1817 is the opening of Waterloo Bridge. They seize on that as the day. There's a big spectacle. They get veterans there. They get cannon captured there. Um, the Prince Regent decides he's going to tour it on a boat and then on foot, and he hands out a bunch of medals, a lot of merchandise and tat. Um, and if you're interested in that, there's a there's a short video I did on on that medal uh, from the Waterloo Live that you can find on the NRWGC YouTube channel, um, along with a whole bunch of other utterly fascinating things from that from that uh, that 12 hour marathon that we did. Um, but there's a there's a theater. Uh, um, a couple, uh, like, I think it's about half a mile south of Waterloo Bridge. It's roughly right these days where it's in the area of, like, the Imperial War Museum, that area. Um, and they throw, a, they they put on a, uh, a big commemorative event that commemorates not only the battle, but the opening of the bridge. And so they build a huge set. They, part, they have a part of a set that's like the, the grand battle. And, you know, they, there's the traditional tournament or display. And then they also have a, a set that's like the, that's like two arches of the bridge. So you can, so they can commemorate that. Uh, you know, look, look, uh, Georgian spectacle and London in particular was, was full of people who were going to do whatever they could to make money and make their mark. They were showmen to the end. The Georgians extravagant, shocked. I am, never, I tell never. You. Um, okay, let's let's change tack a little bit. Napoleon, this is an unfair one of me because you focused on on you know consumerism. I, and memory. yeah, but I have heard of him. Um, <laughs> funny that. <laughs> um, do we know what Napoleon does on Waterloo Day? Because and the reason that I ask this is not kind of a, a throwaway question, but of course by this point. Napoleon is on St. Helena. Okay, so mm -hmm. this is really kind of taking off in sort of the 1820s and um, he's he's dead before the 1821 um, anniversary comes around. But he is at the... He's being held effectively at his majesty's pleasure, yeah. right? Um, so how... 
what's Napoleon's experience of Waterloo Day? Because he goes through this period of his incarceration where he is basically having his nose really rubbed in it um, by the governor of the island, who is his de facto um, jailer. jailer. Um, so does I can't imagine, actually, that the British are um, tactful. Um, it, it's not often a, uh, a trait that um, you can apply to the British when it comes to how they deal with the French. So what's Napoleon's experience of Waterloo Day, if we know anything about it? So I haven't I haven't done the research on this. This is something that's going to go into my Empire book, because St. Helena is part of the Empire. It's an East India Company island at that point. Um uh, but it is something I am going to look into because it is it is d- delightfully petty uh, in the same as recreating uh, the Battle of Waterloo on the fields of Abraham next to Quebec. Um, but um, it wouldn't it would not surprise me in the slightest if the British are commemorating this. What I think what I think is more likely to happen uh, is they're throwing a military style banquet party for the garrison in St. Helena. And just to be polite, they send Napoleon an invitation. Polite. Polite. That that's that's one way of phrasing it. Yeah, um, and I wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me to discover they did the exact same thing for Trafalgar. Yes, nor me. I, I would not be surprised by that either. Um Okidok. So the next question has to be: how does all of this die? Is it quite as simple as well Wellington goes and, and obviously from that point on, there isn't another Waterloo banquet. But we talk a lot about, you know, what does it take for Waterloo to fade from popular memory? Mm -hmm. Sure, the Crimean War comes around, but it's not exactly um, something you would celebrate as a great success for British arms, Um, much though people have sort of views on um, Tennyson's Charge of the Light Brigade. My views on it apparently aren't shared by the majority but i, I think Look, if, if, if you're gonna honor anything if you're gonna honor anything there honor uh thin red line in the charge of the heavy brigade which is much more indeed. successful indeed um but you know how does this fade away because obviously today you know 18th of june it, it's not even i would say remembered in the same way that trafalgar day is and trafalgar day doesn't really have a a mass cultural following but people are perhaps a tad more inclined to remember trafalgar day than they are Waterloo mm. Day. So how do we get to this point where it just fizzles out? So part of it is the death of Wellington. Part of it is the death of more and more veterans. Uh, all of that. Um, but there is still an interest, right? There's a there's a there's a Waterloo panorama in 1889, 1890 for the 75th anniversary that does relatively well. I mean, it's, it, you know, it lasts about a year. It's nothing, nothing compared to the runs that the panoramas had in the 1820s and 30s, uh, but it does relatively well. There's a massive uh, uh, gold-plated military orgy at uh, Chelsea Hospital um, that year as well to celebrate, you know, so there, there is, there's a hundred percent there. I think, I, you know, I think in, in the, in the, so I think the annual stuff starts to fade with the death of Wellington, with the death of veterans, and crucially with the Crimean War, which does push that, but also does push that question of, are, are, are we really celebrating this? Like, it is that, begins to be that question of taste. Um, especially uh, key, uh, in addition, because of um, 
you know, the, the people that we celebrated uh, against, we are now fighting, we're now dying side by side with in the Crimea. Yeah, but some of uh, the generals haven't caught up with that. That is very true. Rag, Raglan actually tries to, to time an attack on the, on, the, on the anniversary to sort of commemorate it. And the French are just like, what are you doing? What, what are you doing? Um, funnily enough, what uh, Astley's um, uh, basically shuts down production of the Battle of Waterloo during the Crimean War and becomes the center of Anglo-French cooperation instead. They throw, they put all of these hippodramas on about like the glory of French arms and like the meeting of French and English kings in honor. Um, it, it's uh, it's it's a propaganda machine. It's kind of brilliant to watch. Um, and then the war ends and they start again, occasionally putting Waterloo on again. Um, but yeah, it becomes it becomes less and less. I think as as people age out of it, as people die out of it, and it becomes more uh, what we experience, which is yes, you know, if you go to Waterloo, the field of Waterloo on the eighteenth of June any year, there will be reenactors there. But on the two hundredth, the one hundred and fiftieth, the two hundred and twenty fifth, the two hundred fiftieth, there's always going to be more. The 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 huma humanity loves those moments. Um, and so it becomes more of that. So that's why the 75th is is big. The 100th would have been enormous, uh, except for this pesky World War One thing that somehow takes over. Um, it's the know. wrong war. Uh, that, that's, that's all that I can possibly say. It's the wrong war. Look, they even stole the name for our war. Ours was known as the Great War. And then they decided to call that one the Great War. It's it's yeah. just it's it's the incorrect war. I'm very sorry. Yeah. I, I know it has a following, but um, it's it's just incorrect people. It's also just really depressing to read about. Uh, it, it is. Um, yeah. No, I mean, so the other the other thing there is once you get to the First World War, right? We have Waterloo is commemorating a victory over our now staunchest ally with the help of our now sworn enemy. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you can get away with the Belgians and the Netherlands, especially since Britain goes to war in, in 1914 for the Treaty of London and for Belgium, Belgian neutrality. Um, but yeah, the Prussian side, we don't talk about that anymore. You know, uh, it's not fashionable. Is it? The House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha becomes the House of Windsor to get away from that. You know, uh, St. Petersburg becomes Petrograd to get away from that. Uh, they're not exactly going to celebrate Anglo-Prussian cooperation. No, absolutely. Okay. So I think I think it really does sort of, it, it you know, it begins to fade. And then, especially as this shifts, as, as commemoration shifts to what we recognize today, it becomes more and more of a, of a different thing. What was it Macmillan said? Events, dear boy, events. There's, yeah. there's your answer. Um, so one final question before I let you go back to your life, I guess, rather than sitting here at my beck and call. Um, talking into a, a podcasting mic, the date, and I mean today's date, you chose November 18th for a very specific reason. And I'm guessing it's not as lazy as, hey, it's the 18th of a month and it's sort of the month before Christmas, so that'll do. Um, so why today? Why is today significant in this story? Look, uh, I would be lying if I didn't say the choice of of today's of November is at least partially to get it onto Christmas lists, to get it available for people to buy their fathers. It makes a great Christmas present for your father guys or for you or for anyone else. Um, you just saved me the plug that I was going to do at the end. So thanks for that. No worries. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the hardback was released on June 18th, which is 
obvious why. Like, come on, I had I had to. It was there was no question. Um, but the paperback wasn't going to be ready for June 18th of this year, and waiting for another year seemed a bit silly. November the 18th, 1852, was the Duke of Wellington's funeral. It was the day that sort of ended all of this. And it is the day that opens the epilogue of my book. The epilogue of my book is about that funeral. Um, so when when my editor was like, all right, uh, late October, November, I said, November 18th, that's it. I, that date is etched in my brain. Um, you know, it's got the same day as Waterloo, but it's, uh, it's November and you have uh, Wellington's funeral and sort of all of this both reasserting itself, but also fundamentally coming to an end, right? And and that's sort of what's going on here. Now, um, where I have lucked out enormously uh, is that Sir Ridley Scott very kindly decided to release a Napoleon film at roughly the same moment. Yeah, but uh, according to Ridley Scott, um, only the first two books that were ever written about anything in history matter. So I'm very sorry, but according to Ridley... This book is irrelevant and no, so nobody should go and buy it. Um, you can imagine my forthright response to that. Um, but then you and I will sit down and, and discuss that at greater length in due course, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the, the problem with that, and you're you're getting a, a preview of my thoughts, is is that the, the the first history of anything is inherently not history, it's propaganda. Uh for one side or t'other. Um, and you know, you need space to get uh separation in order to get proper scholarship um so yeah but i'm but yes that aside you know look uh napoleon is back in the psyche he's back in the consciousness um you know it gave me the opportunity to write a wonderful little piece uh that you can find on my twitter or my instagram or whatever on uh mr gomersall who was the go-to napoleon for the hippodrama battle of waterloo um who you know sort of Damn it, he he took snuff on stage so that so that Joaquin Phoenix could charge to lead a cavalry charge. Um so yeah, I, so that that's really what it is. It's sort of, you know, it was it was it was around I needed a fall date, and November the 18th was there because it is Wellington's funeral. Um, and it seemed a good way to to bookend this, right? The hardback comes out on the day it starts, June 18th, the paperback comes out on the day it ends, November 18th. That is that is very elegantly done i am also rather ashamed that i didn't immediately realize that november 18th was wellington's funeral that's that's poor that is very poor um but hey why 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 shy away from my um lack of knowledge it would seem um on this show it has been exposed cruelly many a time before and will continue to be well into the future folks who owned waterloo battle memory and myth in British history, 1815 to 1852. It is available in paperback right now. Go to Oxford University Press. And I believe we have a discount code. Am I right? We absolutely do. It is uh, Alpha Alpha Foxtrot Lima. Uh, oh, hell. What's the what's the NATO alphabet for Y? Yankee. Yankee Gulf 6. So A-A-F-L-Y-G-6. We'll net you 30% off. And that's quite a bargain because the paperback is retailing for £25, £24.99 in the UK, 
or $30 in the US, which I think gives us the advantage actually given the current exchange rates. Um, but that's still going to take you down to about $20 or into the teens in terms of pounds. Um, it's available right now, November 18th, 2023 in the UK. If you are in the US, I apologize. It takes a while for, I have to personally row the paperbacks across the Atlantic. Um, so it's going to be either January 18th or February 18th, depending on what website you go to, it seems to vary back and forth. Um, and of course, with all of the problems, global supply chain shortages, paper, all of that, uh, it may end up being early March even. But uh, but it is it is coming. It is cheaper. It's corrected. I caught errors that were in there. Um, so this is the definitive version, at least until uh, someone persuades me to do a second edition. You know what? You might actually get a second edition. Normally, I would make a sarky comment about academic books and second editions and how rare they are. But yours is selling so well that you might actually get a second edition out of this in due course. Folks, make that happen. If you didn't go and buy the hardback, I, I do understand if you didn't go and buy the so hardback. Do, so was, do I, to be clear. The hardback was absurd. It was it was absolutely absurd. Yeah, don't tell um, your editor that. You realise that he'll probably listen to this and, and be unhappy with you he, for... he knows my views on this one i he, i have fought him tooth and nail and and in fairness my editors at oup have gone to bat for me over and over again this is a this is not an editorial thing this is a higher uh price setting thing that has nothing to do with them um but yeah no indeed. but yeah, yeah please folks, come on paperback go get yeah. it it's it's literally going to cost you like I, I can't do the maths i'm very sorry but um let's say 16 17 18 19 pounds that's a decent christmas gift right there go to oup's website um that that discount code once again was luke a a f l y g6 that's alpha alpha foxtrot lima yankee golf six as in the number six okay um, who won't yeah it's Waterloo? who owned waterloo and it's going to come to i'm just crunching the numbers roughly around uh 18 pounds Come on, with people. a discount code. Come on. Surely the, yeah. the Napoleon assist in your life is worthy of that. Um, look, if you've been good this year, or even if you've been naughty this year, stick it on your list to Santa. And exactly. no doubt Santa will help you out and slip it into your stocking. Luke, and I am more than happy, if you reach out to me, I'm more than happy to dispatch a signed book plate so you can have a signed copy even if you've never met me. Which is, in fairness, the recommended way to get a signed copy of an author's book, uh, in most cases, mine included. I, I won't comment, having met you before. Um, <laughs> Luke, it's a, a, an amusing point on which, on which to end what has been an absolute riot of an episode. You'll be back very soon, but thank you for joining me. All the best with the paperback sales, and we will chat again about many things, perhaps less focus on memory, in fact, in the not-too-distant future. I look forward to it, Zach. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for everyone who has listened throughout. Um, I can imagine the number of your listeners who looked at this episode title, realized who was on it, and went, oh, God, those two are at it again. Um, you know, so thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, you know, please, if if you have, if you've read it, if you enjoyed it, if you read it and you didn't enjoy it, reach out, let me know. If you didn't enjoy it, preferably reach out politely. Um, you know, I'm always happy to to talk to, to those who have read it. Um, and if you have questions, as always, I am more than happy to answer. 
also people go leave a five star review on Amazon. Just oh yes, please there. do, please do. It has a five, it has five stars ratings, but no one's left a review yet, and I'm, I I I want to I want words. So yes, that would that would help enormously. Folks, if you're new here, remember to hit the subscribe button so that you can find your way back. And if you're loving the show, please remember to leave a review. It's the most powerful thing you can do to help the show reach a wider audience on our quest for one million downloads. Much love to all my Patreon supporters. Shout outs to my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Rob Griffith, Brendan Teeling, Beatrice DeGraff, Lynn Dawson, Lucy Tatner, Jim Deary, Josh Keeney, Colin Fieldhouse, Stephen Coulson, Jim Getz, Indiana Fats, Stephen Gillen, Hugh Brennan, Alistair Campbell-Greve, Andy Meakin, Mark Anscombe, Rob Coughlin, Bruins Girl, Noah Fink, Mark Trowbridge, Miles Reedy, Nick Overland, Graham Goodwin, Chris Pramas, Anthony Gumbau, an anonymous American, Martin Pisani, Ulrich Ducardo, James Fluick, Roger O'Donnell, Natasha Hobday, Rod Schwager, Chris Kimball, Gary Dennis, David Graylick, Ted Andrews, David Milinsky, Richard Anderson, Arthur Forgey, Reto the Sci-Fi Fan, Sam Moore... <coughs> Wyatt Pollock, Carol Dixon-Smith, Roland Shark, and Jason Morn. And the Admirals, John Haynes, Ryan Diamond, J.C. Kaiser, Bob Burnham, Mike Guest, Liam Telfer, Todd and Ned Campbell, Graham Goodwin, Rachel Stark, Mark Duckers, David Maxwell, David Priest, Graham Callister, Sean Sullivan, Stephen Ashworth, Dan Hazelwood, Kate Walcombe, Steve Carter, and Clemens. I'll be back very soon. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been the Napoleonic Wars pod. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening.